Well, if anyone deserves their own star on Amphibian Boulevard, it's Brian Gratwick, who heads up the amphibian program at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute. Recently, he's focused on raising endangered Panamanian frogs in captivity and reintroducing them to the wild, and conducting research on how to protect amphibians from emerging pathogens like the chytrid fungus. And since the U.S. is an amphibian diversity hotspot, he also works on education and conservation efforts here in the States and was my go-to frog expert for the late, great Science Update radio show. Hey, Brian, great to see you again. Thanks for having me, Bob. Yeah. So uh, what can you tell us about the current state of amphibian conservation? How are we and they doing? Well, amphibians are still in trouble. About 40% of them are threatened or endangered with extinction. Mm. Um, since the last global amphibian assessment in 2004, um, the status of amphibians hasn't really improved much. Mm -hmm. And when we, we look at the amount of capacity that we've actually built globally to be tackling amphibian declines, it's still very much in the domain of academia and herpetologists who are voicing concern um, with very limited numbers of people who are actually doing management types of conservation actions to mitigate threats to amphibians. So um, situation still bleak for amphibians, but um, there are some wonderful people doing some really good research and we have made some, some very interesting research uh, progress in the last decade. Uh-huh. And is there anything that, uh regular people can do? I mean, this audience for this podcast is, is uh, ready and willing to do, you know, to, to help out with, uh, with whatever we can do. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm all for engaging citizen scientists. You know, I'm a very big uh, advocate for iNaturalist. I think it's a wonderful platform um, where people can collect their observations um, and the, the cool thing about iNaturalist is it provides a voucher, right? It's this, just like a museum specimen. Mm -hmm. When you lodge a museum specimen in a museum, you have a date, a collector, a place, and the specimen to go with it. So if someone questions whether you were looking at a, a bullfrog or a green frog, they can go back and look at the voucher. Same with mm -hmm. iNaturalist. If they have uh -huh. questions whether you were looking at a... a a bullfrog or a green frog, they can go and look at your photograph, right? And, and, and use that as a form of validation of your observations. So I really like that it's, it's brought the ability for people to um, make observations in nature, to share them with the community, to get help on learning how to identify things. And it's been an incredibly useful tool. You know, we started right at the inception of iNaturalist, we started a project called the Global Amphibian BioBlitz. And there's now 1.7 uh -huh. million observations of amphibians, 300,000 observers. Wow. And we've seen 61% of all known amphibian species have been recorded on the Global Amphibian BioBlitz. So that's pretty cool. But I do a lot of work on, on amphibians you know, some very rare and endangered ones in Panama. I have the Panama Amphibian Rescue and Conservation Project that, that I work through the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. And 
we have some very threatened and endangered frogs that have disappeared because of the amphibian chytrid fungus, right? Oh, right, right. But we've been getting some observations of threatened and endangered species that we thought were lost frogs um, that, that users have sent us photos through iNaturalist and we've identified them as species we thought had disappeared because of the chytrid fungus. And then we've been able to send researchers back to find those people and those places and those animals and be able to look at and ask questions like, have these amphibians evolved resistance to the amphibian chytrid fungus, right? So just being able to tap into this, this amazing network of lots of different eyes on the ground uh, is a very, very, very powerful tool. Um, I was just looking in Google Scholar and I saw that iNaturalist has been cited in 13,000 scientific papers now. So it's just wow. <laughs> incredible. It's, a, it's an incredible tool for, for conservationists, for researchers, and for people who just want to get out and say, hey, what plant is that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of our um, audience is familiar with iNaturalist. And, uh, and now, uh, since you mentioned it, with the Global Amphibian BioBlitz, hopefully they can join and uh, add their observations wherever they are. And, uh, and get in on that. And I understand you've also been working um, on a, some vernal pools that, you know, people, I don't know if regular people would start them, but um, partners start to provide new habitat for amphibians. What's, what's that about? Right. So I've, I've moved out to near the Shenandoah National Park. I live in a very rural county called Rappahannock. And it's a beautiful place. There's lots of landowners. Mm -hmm all very keen on conservation and, and, and want to do the right thing for, for the wildlife that they are stewards of, right? We all, we all have a little patch that, that we can look after, right? And so when I moved out here, there was some wet, soggy patches in my garden. And I was like, oh, well, that would be a great spot for a vernal pool because it looks like it seasonally gets very wet. And if all I do is dig a shallow depression here and put a little berm there, it'll retain the water long enough for amphibians to breed. And so I did that. And, and the following year, I got spotted salamanders find it and lay spotted salamander egg masses. Wow. And so I, lay, I, I dug a few more and um, now I have 12 vernal pools <laughs> in my garden. But I started wow. talking to huh. other landowners and I'm like, well, they said, oh, do you have to get like heavy earth equipment? I said, no, you really don't want to be doing that in wetlands. You just want to just be yeah. gently enhancing the habitat in a way that's going to be creating fishless habitat for these, these, these obligate vernal pool breeders. And when I say that, these are, these are, are, are things like wood frogs and spotted salamanders that will not lay their eggs in, in pools with fish in it, right? There needs to be fishless habitat yeah. and it can dry up in the summer, no problem, but it just has to be wet and submerged in early spring. So when, when the first warm rains of spring come, where, where it's above 50 degrees at night and it's raining, 
it's not that warm <laughs> and it's wet. So a lot of people don't like right, it. Yeah. But that's when these salamanders and wood frogs will come out in mass and they'll be crossing the roads and they'll all be migrating to their, their breeding sites. Um, and so, you know, I, mm-hmm. I've told a lot of other landowners around here about this and they were like, oh, well, let's, let's dig our own vernal pools. And we had eight different landowners all decide to put in a vernal pool and then they send me updates. Oh, I got my first egg masses. What egg masses are these? And it's, it's, been, <laughs> it's been pretty cool. And these guys are often um, uh, retired people who, who, you know, they're not very tech savvy. They're not an iNaturalist, but they're, they're very, very excited about being able to, to create space for these, these very interesting creatures um, that we live alongside. Okay, great. All right. Anything else uh, that we should share? Um, I just, I'm very, very supportive of citizens going out and making observations, spending time in nature and, and making observations is, is super important. You read Elder Leopold's uh, diaries and, 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 and works, and he used to keep like a phenological diary, the first flower of this the first flower of this species in spring and, and, and things like that. You know, the first, um, the first study that documented um, the effects of climate change on animals took the records that were being kept in English manor houses that would document the first frog call of spring, the first cuckoo of spring and, and things like this and analyze them going back into history and found that indeed frogs were calling earlier and earlier every spring and that this was connected to a long-term change in climate. So, you know, these, these, these observations that people are making out, out, out in, in, in nature that surrounds them wherever they may live are very important and can be used to answer some very big questions. So, I encourage everyone to keep doing it. Great. All right. Thanks so much, Brian. Okay. Thanks, Bob. Well, if you like amphibians or would like to learn to like amphibians, this is the most wonderful time of the year. And we've got links in the info section of this podcast so you can find and sign up for all of the coolest amphibian citizen science projects. And you may already know that April is Citizen Science Month. There is so much happening that it's hard to keep up, which is why you should keep your eyes and brain and browser locked on SciStarter.org backslash Citizen Science Month, all written out. We've got dozens and dozens of featured projects, live events, and activities. We've partnered with Ira Flato and our friends at Science Friday to produce weekly evening events every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And we have our own SciStarter live events every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And those go on throughout the year because here at SciStarter, every month is Citizen Science Month. So check out SciStarter.org backslash Citizen Science Month. You'll see all of these great activities and projects, and at least some of them are probably perfect for you, wherever you are and whatever you like. That's all we've got for you this time. Go out, get wet, have fun. I'm Bob Hershon. See you next time.